In the eighth century, Assyria was the evil empire, the place where the God of Israel could never reign. But in Jonah's experience, the walls of resistance crumbled. Let's take a look with our Truth Encounter study leader Dave Wordson and see how an Old Testament biker game turned to God. It's very important for us never to grow complacent about what the Lord is doing. And I've shared with some of you how when I was over in uh, Hungary and when Dan and Pat and I took a trip to Albania and were able to kind of be the first members of our church that went there besides Ed Murray, I'll never forget when we came back to Budapest, we were there with Don Manfield and his wife, who was one of the Campus Crusade directors that was actually in Albania when the Spirit of God broke out in an incredibly powerful way. As we ate this meal and we pushed back our chairs, Don and his wife shared about the very first night when the Jesus film was shown in the communist auditorium. Don had just come from being on the mission field in Israel. For 10 years, he tried to reach out to Israelis and Palestinians in one of the most difficult mission fields of the world. Don was honest. He shared how discouraged he was. In 10 years, he saw very little fruit. In 10 years, he saw very little response. And this pulled him down. He was really discouraged. And then he just couldn't believe it. The Lord took him out of the hard place of Israel and the Lord took him to Albania. And he's thinking, you know, what could be worse than this? I'm going from the frying pan into the fire. And he shared how in 1991, he was sent by Campus Crusade into Albania. The only country in the world, as we've repeated to you over and over again, the only country in the world that put right in their constitution, there is no God. Before 1991, anyone that studied how the Holy Spirit was reaching out into the world, anyone that was trying to find out what is God doing around the world, Albania would have been at the bottom of the list of where God was working. For example, in Brazil, the church is actually growing faster than the population, which is incredible because the population of Brazil is exploding. But the evangelical churches, churches just like ours, are growing faster than the population rate. You can go to South Korea and go to Seoul, South Korea, and you'll have some of the largest churches that teach the Bible and believe in Jesus. And so in some of the places that we least expect it, missionologists, when they find out the facts, are finding out that the Holy Spirit is exploding in mission outreach. In sub-Saharan South Africa, the proclamation of the gospel and people being born again into God's family is literally explosive. Tremendous need for the teaching of the word of God. Tremendous need for some of you to get trained and to head over there and share the in-depth teaching of the word of God and teaching churches how to really grow in discipleship. But as far as evangelists, Africans need to come here to teach us how to reach out to unbelievers because the spirit of God's powerfully using them. That wasn't true in Albania. Albania was a zero. You could count on your hand the number of believers that were Albanians. And some of them were even not in the country. And then Don, I'll never forget, he shared how he sat there that night in the auditorium where Hoxha, the Albanian dictator, had for over 40 years, since the end of World War II, just held this country in the grips of atheism and communism had burned down over 1,600 churches and converted them into factories and schools and a lot of other things. 
and try to obliterate any indication of any Christian heritage in the past at any time. Hoxha was now gone, and an Albanian former communist administrator stood before a jammed-packed auditorium. I'll never forget drinking coffee and looking at that auditorium and thinking about what God did. Because Don nudged his translator, as I've often done, when something's happening in an auditorium. And you don't know what's happening because you can't understand the language. And Don hit his translator and said, man, what in the world is going on? Because he looked around the auditorium and already people's eyes were welling up with tears. The translator told Don that this former communist leader had just explained that this place had been the temple of communism for many, many years. But tonight, he explained to the group it was going to be a temple of Jesus Christ. And the lights went out. And what our group took all over the villages of Albania for the very first time in Albania, the words of the Gospel of Luke were acted out and the Jesus film was shown for the next two and a half hours there in this auditorium that was now jam-packed with people that were hungry for spiritual truth. The Holy Spirit began to move at the end of that service. There were many, many people that were influenced by that night. As you look at the birth of the evangelical church in Albania, that meeting that night in that that former communist hall began to spread throughout the countries. They had many mass rallies. There were literally hundreds of people that came to know Christ as their savior. There was what we call an incredible evangelistic movement of God's spirit. I want you to understand that that's the power of God. And that's what we're going to learn about as I talk to you about the revival that took place and the parable movement of the Spirit that took place in 1991 in Albania. I want us to go back to Jonah chapter 3. Turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3 because in this chapter we have the most incredible, probably the most incredible revival, a movement of the Spirit in a city of all time. In other words, Billy Graham probably spoken to more people with a, with a message of the gospel than anyone that's ever lived. But even Billy Graham didn't have the kind of results that Jonah had. When Jonah preached to the city of Nineveh, we're going to learn about that today, the entire city, from the lowliest animal, I've never heard of a Billy Graham crusade where even the animals got converted, from the lowliest animal to the most ancient adult that was there, We find them all flat on their face before the living God. And they're crying out for the Holy Spirit to cleanse them and for forgiveness and for the Lord to turn away from his wrath. So this is an incredibly exciting chapter. It's a chapter that focuses us on the sovereign power of God to change life. I want every one of us in this audience to realize that the sovereign God can enter our home. Some of you are in homes where there's an unbeliever there, maybe several unbelievers. And you can begin to feel like it'll never happen. Don't lose that belief that the sovereign God can work. Some of you are in school feeling like, well, man, it's just hypocrisy. And those that say that they're Jesus followers are really just play actors. And I think this whole thing is pretend. Watch out for the sovereign power of God. When God shows up, no one can oppose him. And down through history, If you look at history, you're going to find out that there's times when the sovereign spirit of God just chooses to incredibly change lives. And that's what we need to be committed to as believers. 
in your business. You might be in a corporation to a business that doesn't honor Jesus at all and you think it's a hopeless place and all anyone ever does is curse Jesus and all they do is try to look out for their own materialistic advantage and all they do is live for immorality and they don't, they don't want anything to do with the Bible or anything else. I want you to realize that that's just the place where the sovereign power of God can begin to work. And I'm really preaching to myself this morning because to be honest with you, I have to be reminded of the message of Jonah chapter 3. Because it's easy for me to think that a place like Albania, a place like a big corporate secular business situation, a school, a university, like when I think of the ones at University of Texas, 50,000 strong, a university that in many ways is committed to secularism and where the dominant belief is that you can do whatever you want to do and you can just express yourself in the way you want to express it and, and forget about any kind of biblical standards. It's easy for me to feel like, what in the world can God ever do to counter this situation? Some of you are going to be challenged in your life. In fact, every one of you will be challenged about which side you're going to live for. Whether you're going to live for the secular side, whether you're going to build your life on just the here and now, you're going to live for just the pleasures that you have now, whether you're going to really live for Jesus and you're really going to believe in him. And you're going to be tempted at times to feel like, Jesus, you aren't showing up. It doesn't look like you're doing your thing. It doesn't look like you're in control here. And that's what the life of faith is about. It's about believing that Jesus will come through, that Jesus really is who he says he is. That's what it means now we see through a glass darkly. And I want you to know this is a real struggle. As we open up our Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, we're finding out that first of all, the Lord recommissions his prophet. Look what it says. This is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. It came to Jonah a second time. Go, get up. Is what the Hebrew text says. Get up, get off your duff. That's not really the translation, but that's what I think of. The Lord says, Jonah, I can just see him. You just got vomited up on the beach in Israel. Now, Jonah, get up, clean yourself up, and you need to walk 500 miles. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Nothing about the trip, but Jonah had about a 525-mile trip that he needed to take. Go, get up, and go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. I want you to look, first of all, at the recommissioning of the prophet. Notice that the Lord doesn't say, now, Jonah, you're a bad child. You've already blown this assignment once. I don't think you can handle it, but we're going to give you another shot. And you're probably going to blow it again. And I can't believe how I had to swallow you by the great fish. And you're just such a disaster. But, you know, you try it again. God's not a father that's like that. There is no mention of Jonah's former failure. No mention of that. In fact, it's interesting, except for a few minor details that doesn't mention he's the son of a Mittai. Doesn't mention that. And obviously, in Jonah 1.1, you don't have the second time. Those are the only two differences, which are just obvious differences because of the flow of the story. But what I want you to understand is that God, in essence, just repeats what he said in chapter 1 to Jonah. Now, that's really important. Because what it means is that God is going to hold things over your head. When you get your life straightened out, When you come back to him, God picks you up and he reassigns you. That's what we learned about last week. And I want to emphasize it again. God just gives Jonah exactly the same command again. He says, I want you to go and I want you to tell the city exactly what I tell you to preach to them. And God will do that in your own life. 
You can slip, you can slide, you can fall into sin, but God can bring you back. He can get your life moving again. And it's very important not to hang on to chapter 1 and your disobedience and your failure. It's important to move on and get going the mileage you need to make to fulfill God's command. And that's important for me as well. I also want you to see that the command to Jonah is he is to go and proclaim the exact words. There's a very strong stress that Jonah is to preach exactly the proclamation that God wants him to make. And the the words that are used here in Hebrew are the words that a great king would give to one of his emissaries. It's the words that a great king, like an Assyrian king, would give to one of his emissaries that was being sent to a foreign court. In the book of Jonah, as in many of the Old Testament prophets, the prophet is presented as being a mouthpiece of the great king. And the mouthpiece must not invent his own message. The mouthpiece must not decide what he or she is going to say. They need to tell, they need to declare what the living God has to say, what the king has to say. I want you to realize that in our gathering together as God's people, and then as we scatter out through our community, every one of us are under the commission that Jonah was given. We need to give the exact words that the Lord has had. That means that we listen to God's voice in this book. You can never, never be able to give others the voice of God if you're not listening to his word, his voice in the word of God. For example, if you've gone through a week and you haven't opened up this book, then you know what you've been doing in your work, in your school, in your different outreaches? You've been giving a voice. You've been talking, you've been living, you've been sharing, but you've been given a different message than this book. There's no neutral ground here for me or for anyone else. If you are not listening to the word of God on a daily basis, then you start to give other voices, other words, other advice. It happens all the time. I'm working with a couple trying to hold their marriage together, trying to help them to work things through, trying to help them to realize that covenants are really important, that when you make a holy vow before God and his presence and his people, that it really means something. Your society says it doesn't mean anything. In fact, in our society, you know, we get married under trees and we get married in big ballrooms. Marriage means zilch in our culture right now. You just try it on like you try on different coats. And especially if you're unhappy. Like if you ladies find out that your husband's a jerk and he's just an idiot and he just doesn't do what you need to do and suddenly you find someone else who's not a jerk and he can really meet your needs and you fall desperately in love with him, just like a teenager in high school. Man, you just swap partners. Everyone does that. That is a dominant view in our culture. It is taught as the gospel truth. It's a lie. But if you don't listen to God's word, where you're going to hear a God that talks about what family is, what covenant is, that one of the most important responsibilities of your life is for you to fulfill the covenant promise of your marriage. It's a holy thing. So that none of us would ever laugh, we would never joke about the breaking up of that covenant. It's really agonizing. It's... Terrible, terrible situation. If it has to happen because of, of, of violence or immorality or things like that, we weep over the breaking of that covenant. But we live in a society that doesn't think there's anything to it. And we have to decide which side of the fence we're going to be on. It's very important for us to bring the word of the Lord. You live in a culture where some of you business people will be in executive meetings. 
And the executives will be deciding about, about how they handle the business decisions of their company. And all they'll be looking at is the bottom line. Nobody will even think about how this will influence the people that are working for them. And some people won't even consider that people that are going to be put in very destitute situations. And you're thinking, if, if you join and you're just thinking about, man, I'm just thinking about how to, how to, how to keep myself secure how to have my own money and how to do what I want to do, if you think like that, you become part of the Assyrian system. You become part of the anti-God system. And only this book keeps me straight on that. Only this book can keep you straight on that. Jonah must declare the word of the Lord, exactly what the Lord has for him to teach. In doing this for so many years in our own church family, and I listen as I go and look around the country and see what they're telling other preachers. There's a tremendous pull in our culture for us as preachers to not teach you every word of this book. There's a tremendous pull for us to say things that'll make you happy, that'll make you feel good, because we don't want to drive you away. We want to make sure that we have many people coming to this religious organization called church. And in our culture today, hardly any man of God would receive the word of God to go to Nineveh and give the message that God gave to Jonah to give, which is going to be in 40 days, this city is going to be cinders because of your sin. We laugh at a message like that today. Man, God can be spanking us as hard as can be because we're sinning, because we're being violent, because we're lying, because we're cheating, because we're doing a lot of things that break his law. In our culture as Americans, we have the idea... God is love, God is kind, God is good, God is so beautiful. And everything is beautiful in its own way. And so I can act like a totally rebellious, lawless person. And God won't do a blessed thing about it, right? We live in the God of the absent, we live in the culture of the absent divine father. Our divine father never spanked. In fact, we think it's, it's physical violence for someone, for a wise daddy to spank a disobedient child. That's where we are. And then we, but we're also in a culture, let's be honest, we're in a culture where kids shoot each other at school. When I was a kid, we never had to have metal detectors. Kids did not go to school wondering whether they come home or not because of violence. Violence wasn't a normal thing, but it's a normal thing. When I was a kid growing up in Florida, when the ladies went to a mall, husbands didn't think, man, this could be the last time I see my wife. She could be blown away because of the violence at the mall. You don't even think about it. You hear that on the news, and I hear it on the news. It's become so commonplace, we don't even think about it. Why? Because we've become the Assyrian culture. Violence is the normal part of our culture. And the reason violence is breaking forth in our culture is that the word of the Lord is almost absent. We have a lot of feel-good talking and real sweet religion, and we can sing beautifully, but man, do we really believe what God's word is saying? Do we believe that God is there? Absolutely not. And God tells Jonah something that that just puts a tremendous responsibility on every one of us that are responsible for teaching the word of God. I want to be sure that I teach every single word and only the word that the Lord has for us right here in the Holy Scripture. Jonah is not to add to it. He's not to subtract to it. He is the mouthpiece. He doesn't come up with the message. God's the one that gives him the message from his voice. And Jonah is to be a mouthpiece of that. And today I believe we have access to this prophetic voice in the living word of the Bible. And it's so important every day for us to be able to get that. The next thing I want you to look at here, it says in verse 1, go to that great city of Nineveh. And the Hebrew text says, Jonah, I want you to go to the city 
that is important to God. The NIV doesn't include that, but I think it's very, very important. Because to be honest with you, at this particular point in Assyrian history, Nineveh wasn't the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It wasn't until later, until about 75 or 80 years after the time of Jonah, that Nineveh ascended and became the capital of of a great Assyrian Empire. In fact, to be honest with you, the Assyrian Empire during the time of Jonah was in limbo. There was a series of weak Assyrian kings, and they were being fought by some of their enemies in Urtu, a really weird place. And they were attacking the Assyrians, and they'd experienced several revolts uh, on, the, on the exteriors of their empire. Nineveh is a city that's being shaken. Its greatness is being called into question. Some of its greatness was in the past, and little did they know that their greatness would be in the future. But when Jonah wrote this book, this city was really struggling. They were experiencing some really hard times. But Jonah is told by God, he says, Nineveh is an important city to God. You know, that's really important. I think Midlothian is an important city to God. I think Dallas is an important city to God. I think Fort Worth is an important city to God. You see, we're serving a God today that has a heart and he commissioned us through his son. I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of every ethnic group, every people group on this planet. And that involves sometimes going out of our comfort zone and going to a place that's important to God. Albania was important to God. You know what? When you read like Captain Corelli's Mandolin, they'll describe the Italians coming in and conquering Albania as a a foundation to be able to attack Greece. And the way that uh, the author of Captain Corelli's Mandolin described Albania, it's just a mountainous country with factious bandits and the people can't get along. It's easy to control it. That was the Italian view of Albania in the middle of World War II. It's a country of just mountainous bandits that can't get along at all and hardly worth even mentioning. Let's be honest, how many of you know the history of Albania? Man, I had to look in the Encyclopedia Britannica the first time I went there to even find out where it was. Not alone any of the history of it. Albania is not important from a human standpoint, but Albania was important to God. I want you to know that your school is important to God. Your business is important to God. Because under the new covenant, God has universalized his heart and his outreach to people. He's telling us he wants to go into all the world and I want you to get burdened and I want to get burdened about the fact that where the Lord places me, those people are important to God. That's why Jonah needs to go. Because God has a heart for the Ninevites. So Jonah goes. To be honest with you, it doesn't really tell us that Jonah was excited about going. It doesn't tell us that Jonah said, oh, I love the Assyrian. In fact, based upon chapter 4 that we'll study next week, I think Jonah still hated the Assyrians as much as ever. And the reason he hated the Assyrians is because the Assyrians are the sworn enemy of his people. And also he knows from Amos and Hosea, his fellow contemporary prophets, that eventually God's going to use the Ninevites and the Assyrians to conquer his own people. And so Jonah has incredibly strong, patriotic, nationalistic feelings not to like these people. That's one of the things that encourages me about Jonah as an evangelist. Because sometimes I'm saying, Lord, my attitude's not right. Sunday morning as I preach, Lord, I'm not really into this. It doesn't seem like the congregation's into it. 
sometimes you can feel like, why do we even do this? And one of the great messages that I want you to understand from the book of Jonah is that God's effectiveness doesn't depend upon your emotional well-being. It doesn't depend upon the warmness of your heart. It doesn't depend upon you getting everything together so God can use you. As Americans feel as a technique to being used of God. Like if you, as much as I love the prayer of Jabez, don't use it as a technique. God isn't like a water faucet that if you learn how to twist the water faucet right and turn on the faucet, he'll just pour out. God doesn't work like that. And as Americans, we're always in a technique. You learn the right word. You learn the right formula. And then it will work. God doesn't work like that. I'm going to write a book on the evangelist least likely to succeed. He was filled with anger, filled with disobedience, hated the group he was going to, didn't want to be there, had the greatest result of anyone that ever lived, both in the Old and New Testament. How do you explain that? The sovereignty of God. Everyone of us needs to realize it doesn't depend upon us. As soon as you begin to feel it depends upon us, and man, if we get everything cranked up just right, then God will work. We've lost God. Because the story of the Bible is that God, the great king, does what he very well pleases to do. And that's what I love about the book of Jonah, because it takes a lot of pressure off me. And I don't have to feel like it all depends upon me. And man, I'm the one that has to get everything right before the faucet's really turned on. Man, God can work and God can move. And when you look at the power of God and what he's able to do, there's an incredible encouragement. Because most of the situations that we face, if we're really honest, we understand that no matter how much we got our act together, no matter how much we really try to work on ourselves to be able to meet the need, it's just not going to happen. But I want you to believe in a sovereign God that when he chooses to move and when he shows up, nothing, no one can ever stop him. So Jonah goes to the city. The next part of the chapter, we have Jonah going. We have the the prophet's obedience. He goes to Nineveh. And look how the Ninevites respond. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. I love that. And he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, important to God. In fact, it was so important it required a visit of three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and the Ninevites will be overturned. What a great message, man, really meeting the felt needs of the people. Just can't imagine this guy. Can you imagine he walked in the city and declared 40 days and this city is going to become cinders. Uses the same kind of language it uses for God going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. I can't imagine this. I mean, this is, this is crazy. Well, but let's fill in a little bit of the background. Basically, the idea of the three days is probably this. In the ancient world, I want you to realize that Jonah didn't go in, you know, like a, putting dust on his head and doing all kinds of weird things and just crying out. Like on, down on the quad in, in the University of Texas, there's some people there, specifically there's one guy there that every single day, as the students go to class, he hollers out, you're going to all burn in hell, you're going to burn in hell, repent. It really hasn't been a very effective way to reach the students of of University of Texas. So when it talks about three days in the ancient world, and we have this from many different ancient manuscripts that describe this kind of thing. When you were on an important uh, mission, when you were coming from another kingdom to a major city like Nineveh, the first day you would contact, like in the city gates, and that's where the main judges of a city would come, you would contact them on the first day. 
The second day, you would usually get kind of a hearing before the king of the city or the king of the empire. And the third day, you would usually be entertained, and then there would be some kind of a response. It was like a diplomatic mission. First day, contact. Recognition that you're here. Beginning to get the preliminary message out. Second day, starting to meet the major emissaries that are going to have the decision-making ability, basically the king. Third day, some decisions about how the king's going to respond to your emissary. That was a very normal Assyrian-Israelite way of conducting diplomatic missions. What I love about this is the Bible tells us that Jonah, on the very first day, he goes in and he thinks it's going to be introduction day. This is where I just make my initial contact. I meet with some of the elders at the gate. They take the message to the king of Assyria and we begin to get movement. But what I love about Jonah is what I just told you. The Spirit of God just showed up. And before Jonah could get any further into his message, he's making just preliminary contact. Forty days, and my king Yahweh says, he's going to incinerate the city. Jonah's thinking, man, that'll be a major introduction, but then I'm going to have to go and talk to the king and everything else. Instead, the people that initially hear him, all the people that are in hearing distance, they just suddenly just turn. Their hearts melt like wax. They do what they do in the ancient world when they're mourning. This idea of fasting and tearing your clothes and all this stuff. In the ancient world, when you were really upset about something, when you were just cut to the heart, and you would do this if you lost a loved one, like if if a husband lost a precious wife, he would fast, he would stop eating. And he would tear his clothes and he would fall on his face. You see, the, the Semitic people and the ancient Near Eastern people would be very expressive. Not like, like us Americans who hold it all inside. And this is the way the people responded to the message of Jonah. You see, they suddenly realize that, man, we're on the verge of destruction. Our city is going to be destroyed. And instead of getting angry... And instead of ignoring Jonah's message, instead, their hearts melt. Now, there's some reasons that might have taken place. It's possible that a few months before, that there was a big eclipse of the sun. And in the Assyrian annals, we read that some of the kings would even abdicate their throne for a brief period after an eclipse of the sun. And during Ashurdan III's reign, early in his reign, there was an eclipse of the sun. And it's possible the entire city was shaken over this, what they thought was an evil omen. The second thing that happened during this reign is that there was a major famine. When we read the Assyrian annals from the time period that would have engulfed the ministry of Jonah, we read constantly the Assyrian word for famine. The Assyrian city of Nineveh was wrestling with food shortages. And so it might have been very easy for them to fast second thing the Lord had done to probably prepare the heart of the city. The third thing is the Assyrians thought they were invincible, but I've already told you earlier in our talk today that Urartu, which was one of their kingdoms that was attacking them, was their big rival. Urartu had already taken, for example, the the western city of Carchemish had fallen to Urartu, this, this enemy of the Assyrians. And though the heart of the Assyrian empire is very much intact, on the periphery of their empire... Little major cities and some smaller cities have fallen. 
And so we're in a time period of weakness among the Assyrian people. In fact, in the text of Jonah, it uses a word that means hard time. It's also a word, by the way, that means wickedness. Very interesting. In Hebrew, they use exactly the same word for wickedness and hard times. That's an important connection. And I've talked to you about that. I'm going to talk to you again because it's something as Americans we don't believe at all. Our society believes that you can break God's law, you can forget about His Ten Commandments, you can do whatever you want to, and you won't have any hard times. And then we bolster that argument by putting up idols, like big movie stars and people like that, that seem to not be having any hard time, and yet they seem to be breaking all the rules that there are. And what's very important for you is to be sure that you look at the long-range snapshot. You need to look at where people's lives really end up. And this is very, very important. Because our society says if you break the rules, if you break God's command, if you break God's moral standards, there will be no consequences. The God of the Bible says absolutely not. He says, I am the sovereign king. I'm very gracious. You can break my rules at times and I'll let you go and go and go and go and go. But eventually, God is a judge. The Bible reveals him not just as a kind grandfatherly daddy. He's also a judge. And one of the things that scares me about some of you is some of you have no, no hesitancy at all about breaking his principles and breaking his rules. You just do it. And you think you can come and say, oh, Lord Jesus, I love you. And then you just go and live totally opposed to his laws. And we need to hear the message of that Jonah gave to the Assyrians. Yet 40 days and the city will be destroyed. You can study history. When we were studying the book of Revelation, I often used World War II Germany to illustrate the message of the book of Revelation. It's easy to forget the Germans had churchmen that took this book in the early 1900s and they threw it in the trash can. You could go to Lutheran churches and you could go to other denomination churches throughout Germany in the early 1900s. And they all laughed at this book. They said, this book doesn't apply anymore. This book is outdated. In fact, a lot of our, the movement of liberalism in our country was strongly influenced by the brilliance of German theologians writing in the early 1900s. Did it have any consequences? Did the fact that you went to church and didn't hear this book? Did the fact that you had preachers leading you that didn't really believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that Christ rose again, did that have any influence on the culture? Yes, it did. The German culture lived for two things, violence and sex. And so did our culture. Brothers and sisters, secular America lives for the thrill of violence and the thrill of sex. And I want you to know that the two go together. If you start just to live for the passion of sexuality, it will spill over into the passion of violence. They go hand in hand. And that's all rooted in just living as if there's no upper dimension. Living as if there's no God. If there's no God, then all we have is now. Then you just try to get all the sensation and all the thrill you can out of right now. In fact, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, worship the goddess Ishtar. In fact, the word Nineveh is one of the Assyrian words that stand for this goddess. And there was a major temple that the Assyrian kings kept rebuilding and refurbishing in the city of Nineveh. It was the primary worship of the goddess of war and the goddess of sexuality. So when you go to the movies and you watch a movie that's just filled with violence, and I'm not talking about there's violence in the Bible, but in the Bible, the bad guys 
lose. They get hurt. And violence doesn't work out. As you look at the story, the story of the Bible will tell the truth about violence. When you go and just watch petty violence, and it doesn't mean anything. You just watch people being blown away. When you play video games and you just love stomping on people, you love hitting people, you love shooting people, our society has all kinds of intellectual debates. This doesn't really influence people. Yes, it does. You are worshiping. You are worshiping the thrill of violence. So our culture says, man, how in the world does this ever happen in real life? Well, of course it happens in real life. As you think in your heart, as you think in your internal being, you'll eventually do it with your hands. You'll eventually do it with your feet. You'll do it with your body. What you conceive inside of you will eventually express itself internally. They're not divided. They are united. So Assyria is among us. That's what Jonah was up against in the, in the, seven, in the 8th century. That's what we're up against today. And you've got to decide which side you're going to be on. And what I want you to see is an incredible thing happen. As Jonah proclaimed the message, the Ninevites believed God. And you're going to have to decide whether you're going to believe God. It says they turned, they turned away, they believed God, and they declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne which meant that he was going to recognize there was a higher authority than his own. He rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And then he issued this decree. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast or herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink anything. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on the Lord. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent. Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe his heart of compassion. The very next line says, maybe with compassion that he'll turn from the fierce anger when we will not perish. I want every one of you to know, brothers and sisters, that God still has harsh anger towards our sin and anyone else's sin. You're in high school and your friends all go to a party and you take cocaine. Say, oh, it'll never happen. Oh, yes, it does happen. I've worked with kids down through the years. They drank too much. Their friends gave them a few more pills, a few more snorts, and they were taking cocaine. A whole lot of them had the idea it has nothing to do with violence. Oh, yeah? I read in Christianity Today while I was working out. There's a deer-believing farmer down in Colombia, just like yourself, an agricultural man, just like yourself. Because of his love for Jesus, he said, I'm not going to plant cocaine. And so he burned all of his cocaine. As the Lord Jesus came to his life, he turned away and said, I can't do this anymore. He went to his fellow farmers in his village and he got them to plant legitimate crops, though it was a lot less money for them because of their commitment to Jesus. They decided they would not plant cocaine, but they would plant legitimate crops. He had a wife and two precious little kids and the drug lords blew him away as he walked out to his fields and riddled his body with bullets. And every kid that takes cocaine, you have become part of that violence. I want every kid, I want every adult, because it's not just the kids. If you take the adults out of the drug trade in America, there is no drug trade. It is legitimate business people like yourself that make secret decisions that keep the drug trade going. I want every kid, every business person to realize, as soon as you take one step into that world, You have killed a fellow believer in South America. That is the way that evil works. You're always connected. 
You husbands, look at your secretary at work. It starts, your wife treats you like dirt. She's not really very nice to you. She's constantly telling you to take out the garbage. Your secretary gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning so that she looks like a goddess and she treats you like a king all day long and you find yourself starting to go to bed with her. You have just become part of the culture of violence. Because when there is immorality, people get angry. When there's unfaithfulness, people hate. And when you hate, if pistols are near, people get killed. Ask any policeman in this room right now what I said isn't the truth. It is the truth. It's connected. And your culture is telling you, as a man, you can do whatever you want to do. And you can go ahead and having your tremendous passion because you deserve to have it. But as soon as you do it, you have introduced a culture of violence. You have generated kids that I know that given another 15 years and they grow up, they could very well be sitting in my office and I'll have some precious girls and they'll be saying, I might as well take my life. As we unravel what happened, they'll say, well, daddy couldn't care about me. He cared about someone else and he left me and he wasn't faithful to my mom. And so I don't feel that anyone will ever be faithful to me. And a girl will look at me and just laugh. I talk to him about a daddy in heaven, a father in heaven who loves them. And they'll say, you got to be kidding. Just the word father to me means abandonment, rejection, and unfaithfulness. So don't ever use that word of some God who's not there. He wasn't there for me because my dad just walked out on me. And the very next thoughts will be, someone will be saying, a young woman will be saying, why don't I just take my life? When you guys tell dirty jokes, when you're all together, you teach them Sunday school on a Sunday morning in Midlothian Bible Church. But when our young men grow up, which they do, and they go to work for you in the marketplace, right now in this group, right now, young men that grew up in our church are working for many of you in the marketplace. When they see you cheat a little bit, when they see you lie a little bit, when they see you tell dirty jokes a little bit, when they see you cuss without any relenting, just saying that's the way it is, you become part of the culture of Assyria. That's the way it works, and I have too. And violence flows from that. And what the book of Jonah is saying is the Spirit of God wants to come among believers and then to touch the hearts of unbelievers and say it's time to realize that there needs to be the power of God's Holy Spirit producing righteousness in our life, producing obedience in our life, that it's not just nice stories, it's not just culture, it's not just good music, but it is the flesh and blood obedience. The Assyrians broke before the living God. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that God, the Holy Spirit, wants to move into our hearts. If some of you are wrestling, what I've tried to help you to feel and help myself to feel, I want you to see how things are connected. I want a man this week when it's late at night and he gets on the internet and he's tempted to look at pornographic literature. I want a big red light to go off and say, no, it's part of this terrible, terrible monster of violence and it will destroy me. And I want you to cry out to the Holy Spirit. And I want you to ask him to help you to live in the new man. I want it to really happen. I want you to be in a business this week 
And as the, the decision begins to unfold, I want you to be able to hear, man, this is really going to influence some innocent people. Sure, my parachute clause will stay intact, but I got to care about all the people that I represent. My job is not just to put money on my wallet, but as a leader in business, I am responsible to carefully shepherd and to care for all that's underneath me so that we don't have a culture of violence. You know what's the problem in Colombia? What's the problem in the streets of Sao Paulo? Why is there violence? Why can't you walk through the streets of Sao Paulo and be safe? Because there's so much disparity between the rich and the poor. And it's not that riches in themselves are evil, but for years now in Brazil and in most of South America, the elite class does whatever they want to do. They lie, they cheat, they steal. It's a normal viewpoint of life. And that's why there's violence. Eventually there will be revolution. And I want you to know this week as believers, you might feel you're just a little insignificant number, but you're not. As you go into school and you don't cheat on an exam, as you go into society and you don't cheat on your wife or your husband, as you go out into the world and you live purely for the Lord, and when you do sin, as you repent and sackcloth and ashes, as you break with your heart before the Lord, then the Lord can powerfully work. Is there hope? Yeah, there's tons of hope. 